IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode, we discuss how 2021 is shaping up to be a very big year for Heartland Rock. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Uh, as usual, just thinking about our interns' workload. Um, you know, this year they've already uh, tackled the St. Vincent beat, exhausted the Lana Del Rey beat. Yes. Uh, yes. They are hard at work on the Sindri beat the, for people who listened to us last week. Everyone knows that's Bjork's incel son. We reward close listening here at IndieCast. Um, can we uh, can we get the uh, the intern on uh, on top of the future Lord singles as well? Because I feel like at this rate, like because she's obviously uh, being very relaxed. I I feel like in her latest songs, like I feel like the next single was probably going to be called something like Netflix and Chill. Yeah, man, or it's, something. It's, or, it's the anthem of a pandemic living that we need in these times where we want to be more uh, uh, spontaneous than ever. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, or she's like a really rich person who doesn't have much to yeah. say. I mean, that's my <laughs> sense so far. I don't know. I could be wrong. This uh, this Lord rollout is looking a little uh, shaky. Yeah, we, we got, we're going to discuss a couple in the next few weeks. We got some really shaky album rollouts, but, you know, Know, a, you know, when it comes to like shaky, unpredictable album rollouts, like our intern is just sitting there wondering, like, okay, I work for two music writers who have been in this game for over 15 years or 20 years, maybe. And how come there's just nothing brewing? Like, why are they not telling me to follow every single bit of Kanye West news Regarding this album yeah. that's apparently dropping today. Yeah, Donda, Donda. Donda, yes. Coming out today, supposedly. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, like you said, we've, we've both have been around for a long time. So we're of the generation that, uh, you know, really, I would say for a good 10 years, from like mid-aughts to like the mid-2010s, yeah. Kanye was like must- see must listen to entertainment whether it was his albums or his interviews whatever he did whether you loved it or hated it was very uh i mean it was compelling i mean he, he was a fascinating person i still think he's the greatest rock star pop star whatever you want to call it of the early 21st yeah. century you know and maybe I'm, I'm maybe i'm saying that because like i revisited Ooh. yeezus recently and that's a yeah that album holds up for me, I, I that's a great record. I love that era of him, but yeah, like not caring about Kanye West stuff because I do <laughs> not care about this album really at all. It's it's still new to me. It feels a little weird. Yeah, like with Kanye West albums, it's like you you just th- it's it's almost like Eric Alper type uh, crowdsourcing. You rank you rank Kanye albums like you put something other than the first two at the top and. You know, you just let the conversation go from there. Like, it, it, it's more like you're just sort of giving back to the community. You're paying it forward just to make the make sure the discourse continues to happen. So, but we haven't done that. Well, it, I mean, there was a period, again, you know, that, that like, 04 to, like, 2000, I guess, uh, the college dropout. Up until Life of Pablo. Yeah, exactly. In, like, college dropout to Life of Pablo, like, that about, it's about a 10-year span, 10, 11, 12 years. And it was like, well, he was putting out, rec- like, it, it was a thing, like, he wanted to rank his albums because his newest album 
could potentially be your number one. I mean, yes. your, your list was constantly changing. And now, you know, it's been... Uh, I, I guess there's somebody out there who might put Yay at the top, you know, some lunatic who would be ranking albums that would want to do that. But I think for the most part, uh, you know, the the list seems pretty set in stone. I, 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 yeah. I was thinking, too, you know, I mean, if you look at, like, the young generation of critics who are coming up now, I mean, do they have any reference point for this? I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, if you're 24... Uh, does Kanye have that kind of relevance, or do you hear the conversation that we're having as a twenty-four-year-old and and just think, what are they talking about? Like this is such old head, you know, BS. Like I, I don't care about this at all. I imagine this is what it was like if in the nineties when if you were to hear like two forty-something music critics discussing like Prince when he was just about to drop like Crystal Ball or <laughs> like or something or like uh, I can't even remember his album titles, but maybe we were like deep into that era. But you know what? It's like cycle of life, man. Like eventually, the people whoever whoever is like the twenty twenty three equivalent of indie cast, like uh. They'll be talking about like ranking Tyler the Creator albums when like Tyler the Creator starts making like acoustic uh, singer songwriter type things. That's true. It'll have if you're listening to IndieCast right now and like you're feeling young and you know in your prime, you're gonna get old and washed. It'll happen to you. That's our episode. Thanks a lot, everyone, for listening. Well, I was writing something and I realized, you know, in reference to Tyler the Creator, that that famous uh, appearance that he made on Jimmy Fallon. Uh, you know, like, uh, that was his big kind of mainstream coming out party. Like, do you remember that? Yeah. It was like an iconic performance. That, uh, is 10 years old as of this year. You know, that was 2011. That's when Fallon was still on Late Night, like, before he was on yeah. The Tonight Show. Uh, so, even Tyler, the, the creator, like, is he, he's gotta be 30, I would think, by now, right? He's probably 29, 30. He's been in the game for our a while. Our intern needs our intern needs to get. I think on he that. was nineteen when he was on Fallon, which would make him about you know maybe he hasn't turned twenty nine yet. Maybe he's like twenty eight, twenty nine in that range. So he's still pretty young, but he's like been in the game for a long time. Time flies, and speaking of time flying, this is a little far afield from our show, but can I do a shout out? Milwaukee Bucks first title oh, in fifty years, half a century. Time flying. Time was very slow in Wisconsin, waiting for this to happen. <laughs> Uh, I'm a Wisconsin native, of course, so I'm excited about this. Although I have to keep it real and just say that I was a bandwagon jumper in the playoffs. I did not follow the season that closely, but I did watch every playoff game, and I always cheer for Wisconsin. I like to see the real America defeat uh, the coastal elites. I'm joking, of course. I mean, Phoenix is not a coastal elite. Not- yeah, but, <laughs> but they beat Atlanta. They beat Atlanta, which is uh, you know a city that always is seen as a prime NBA free agent destination because of the nightlife, the cultural uh, impact of it. There is Miami. They beat in the first round because of once again the nightlife and the no state tax. And then they beat Brooklyn, which I'm sure oh, was yeah. satisfying for you on many many levels. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know Brooklyn is known, of course, as a fashion of indie rock but i just want to give a shout yeah. out or was i don't even know anymore. well they're not anymore and they, they probably won't be again because it's too expensive for bands to live there they have to do a serious like real estate crash in new york city for <laughs> for indie rock to return to that it'll be city. it'll be like a shithole in the 80s again and then uh you know we're gonna get like the new cbgb that's so. right that's right but I, I i just want to do a quick shout out 
to all the Milwaukee bands that I could remember this morning. So uh, shout out to the Promise Ring, of course, and, and Cap and Jazz. Shout out Violent Femmes. Shout out the Bodines. Shout out Die Cruisin. <laughs> the Guffs. Dussabully. Shout out to Jail. Shout out to Collections of Colonies of Bees. <laughs> shout out to Field Report and the Frogs. And, uh, of course, the great Call Me Lightning. Um, if they're, uh, these are all Milwaukee, jail. these are all Milwaukee <laughs> bands, by the way, I'm not just doing Wisconsin bands. These are Milwaukee specific bands. I lived in Milwaukee for eight years, so I still have a lot of love for the city. Uh, but yeah, you talk <laughs> about the nightlife. You could go to the Cactus Club back in the day and see Call Me Lightning. That was a pretty fun time. So, uh. Jail. That's with two L's, everyone. Like if you, yes. that is like elite remembering some guys, right? I, there. uh, I profiled jail for Milwaukee Magazine. <laughs> Many, many years ago. So uh, shout out to, to, to uh, Vinnie Kircher, uh, lead singer of Jail. I uh, hope he's doing well. So, uh, yeah, it's good to feel good about something because uh, yeah. are you are you feeling... It, Dark clouds yeah. emerging. It, yeah, it, yeah uh, the future of live music again suddenly seems cloudy. After yes. we, we were like celebrating returning to shows... And now they've got the Delta variant thing coming in. Um, and, and you get some articles coming out about like how in the Netherlands there was a festival that caused like a COVID outbreak. Florida is, you know, doing what Florida does and just seeing a surge, which, you know, puts Fest, um, you know, one of my favorite festivals in question. And, um, you know, it's just like, did we get our hopes up? Like, do we want to, I, I just, I want, I'm like dying to get back to normal, but I'm also like, we can't do another lockdown or maybe people won't, won't do another lockdown. Like, I, I don't think at least people in- will. Right? I mean, it seems like there's not an appetite for that again. Yeah. I don't know. Especially if you're vaccinated, are you going to want to go into lockdown? I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. we may not have a choice. Who knows? But, uh, you know, can we just make a public service announcement for anyone out there who hasn't gotten vaccinated yet? Like, get the vaccine. Come on. Just do it. Yes. So we can all <laughs> hang out. We're a bold stand here. Well, it is a bold stand. There's like half of, <laughs> yeah, half I the know. country hasn't been vaccinated yet. Yeah. And that's why we're dealing with this stuff. So I don't know if, uh, I don't know what the breakdown is in the IndyCast yeah. community as far as uh, <laughs> getting vaccinated. But I just want to say... Yeah. Just do it. It's okay. You're gonna feel fine afterward, and you're gonna help other people. You're not just helping yourself. So, quick PSA there. Uh, yeah. You brought up something that I had not realized <laughs> a, a potential controversy with the Delta variant that's related to our show. Yeah. Yeah. There's a band called Delta Sleep with an album coming out in like October, and Black Keys had their album like Delta Cream. Yeah. Like I'm just thinking back to like how. After 9-11, a lot, like, if there was, like, anything that potentially referenced, like, bombings or, like, death, like, you had to change it. Like, you couldn't play Blow Up the Outside World uh, by Soundgarden. That song was, like, five years old at the time. I also remember that, uh, you know, Bleed American, Jimmy World's uh, Breakthrough 2001 album was also called Jimmy Eat World after that. And by the way... That album turns 20 years old on, uh, I believe, this Saturday. Oh, man. I am, like, if you if you want to hear me, like, really get into my feelings and just talk about feeling washed, like, I will not write a single word. I will not participate in the 20th anniversary cottage industry. Like, I mean, I was asked, and I, like, I, I actually said this, y'all. 
like I think I've written a bit too much about Jimmy Heat World recently. Oh Can man, somebody else please do. I feel like I, know, I feel right? like there's going to be an outcry uh, in in the emo community that there's not an Ian Cohen retrospective essay on Bleed American. Uh, I, I'm I'm shocked. I thought I, w- I would have already seen this this week, and now you're telling me no. that not only did you not write one, you had an opportunity to write one, and you said no. Uh, I feel I, look. I I respect you for <laughs> saying I've written maybe too much about this band. I want to like just cool it a little bit, but I also mm. wonder if uh, you are derelict in your duty here uh, and not <laughs> writing. You know, just purple prose about how great Bleed American is. Although this isn't your favorite nah, Jimmy they're, World they're... record, right? I mean, is this? Cause, it is not my favorite Jimmy Eat World record. Clarity is like my favorite album of all time, it, so is, it can only. I mean, is Bleed American number two then? Oh yeah, it's got to be number two. Okay. I mean, like it's it, it's like uh, I want to say it's like an OK Computer Kid A dynamic, even though they're like completely opposite as far as like their sonic uh, styles, you know. Um, but yeah, Bleed American's number two. Sometimes, like if I'm feeling a little bit frisky, I might say I like Futures more than Bleed Ooh. American. Now. What, what 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 I find so interesting is that like you know this is yeah for anyone who follows me on Twitter or just like kind of knows me as a person like this is my favorite band ever and w- I don't think we've like ever talked about Jimmy World on this pod so I have no idea what your take is on them I imagine this one is uh you know Bleed America would be your favorite a because it's got like a Davey Von Bolin feature on a Praise Course which was like. You know, the NBA Finals encapsulated with, like, we're Phoenix. They're from Mesa, Arizona, uh, Jimmy Eat World. But um, they played uh, the halftime show for the Phoenix Suns uh, during the playoffs twice. Um, and when the when they stopped, well, they started losing. Uh, but, you know, and also there's, like, a song, like, Authority song, which is named after a John Cougar Mellencamp oh, yeah. song. So oh, yeah. I, I would imagine this one, if there was a Hayden Core Jimmy Eat World album, this one would be it. Yeah, I mean... For all those reasons you said, as well as I think uh, it has obviously the biggest singles of their career, and, and rightfully mm-hmm. so. I I mean, to me, I don't know where Sweetness lands in the Jimmy World song power rankings, but... It, oh, it's the best. Okay, I was going to say, for me, that's like, hands down, my favorite Jimmy World song. I was actually l- listening to it before this show, like before we started recording, and I was like, damn, this is a, this is a great song. Um, so... I mean, I don't go deep on Jimmy Eat World. I know Bleed American quite well, and I know Clarity. Yeah. And other than that, I haven't really dug too deep in. Not because I, I don't care. I just, you know, I haven't had time to do that. But I, I I plan to do that at some point. But, yeah, Bleed American, I think, really great record. Uh, and yeah, I can't re- go wrong with I it. I remember buying it when it came out. It was my first Jimmy Eat World record. I wasn't really familiar with their previous stuff. Um. I think I bought it because of Sweetness. Um, mm. I don't think I think well, Sweetness came out after the middle, didn't it? Wasn't it was the middle yeah. the first single or was I think nah the first the first single was uh, the title track right. Bleed American. And I remember when I, I I burned the CD from like my the radio station I worked at. I got a speeding ticket on my way home the first time I listened to it in my car. Now, mind you, it was like in a college town, so I was probably going like thirty five in a twenty mile per hour zone, but. Uh, Bleed American was first, and I don't know if I would be as, as hyped on this album if the middle was the first single. Right. But yeah, middle was the second one. Sweetness was the third one. 
that was the one where they hired the uh, video uh, director who did Coldplay's Trouble and made almost the same exact video. It's a really good video, though. Um, and then Praise Chorus was the fourth one. That's like the one where like the video budget runs out and you just do a live clip. Right. So that was that is the singles history of uh, Bleed America. Well, and you know, how amazing is it that Jimmy Eat World had the budget on that record to go four singles deep? I mean, it's also because the record's really <laughs> great that they could go that deep. Yeah, but uh, but it was more because it was more because it was successful. I mean, yeah. they, this the the famous story goes that. You know, Capital dropped them after Clarity, but like they weren't as like broke and destitute as people want to make them out to be. They were still doing well on tour, and they did like kind of a old like a like a primordial uh, Kickstarter type thing where they you know pooled their tour money and so forth to record the record on their own dime, and they shopped it around like every single like every single major label was bidding on that record, um, and they ended up with DreamWorks. So. Um, yeah, I mean, by when, when they got there, they knew it was a hit. I like this because you didn't write the think piece, but like, I feel like you're like giving me your think piece nuggets right here. Like you're giving me some background on the record, which, you know, like, okay. I, I was just like, someone should be, is it, if there's a stenographer out there in IndyCast world, just typo what Ian was saying. And that'll be your Jimmy world <laughs> bleed American think piece, uh, that, that he didn't give you. Okay, I, I hope I hope people out there let Ian know how disappointed they are that he didn't write the Bleed American piece. That, this stuff is all out there, though. Like, well, it was in the Ringer interview I did, the Uproxx, Jimmy Eat World Top 30. They're still looking uh, for the, the synthesis, Ian. The, the uh, people, they want you to synthesize this into a... I mean, there's still time. I mean, after we record this, you could knock out probably 3,000 words on this album in like 20 minutes. I have no doubt. <laughs> Uh, so we'll see what happens. Maybe you know. Maybe by the time we post this, you have written a bleed American piece that we are good at actualizing things <laughs> into this world. Can we? Uh, we should probably do a quick shout out to. Uh, there's a box set coming out. I think is it out today? The uh, the the anniversary yes, box is. set for Tiny Music songs from the Vatican gift oh. shop. Uh, Stone Temple yeah. Pilots, and I wrote about this record uh, earlier this year. And um, it's my favorite record, I think, by Stone Temple Pilots. I go back and forth between this and Purple. I, maybe yeah. it, is Purple the clarity and is Tiny Music the Bleed American? <laughs> actually, actually, Purple would be the Bleed American and maybe Core is the clarity because Purple had all those hits. Maybe Tiny mm. Music is the futures of uh, Stone yeah, Temple Pilots. Yeah, I think, yeah, the, the chronology isn't exact, but... Um, yeah, I would say that like uh, I don't know, maybe Clarity's like tiny music because that's like their quote weird one. Um, but it's but, their yeah. I well, mean, it's not their is Clarity. It's is that their second record or is it the first record? Yes, it is. Okay, it's technically their third if you include their self titled album Jimmy Eat World, which is out of print. But uh, like look at you that that album's. That one's out of print for a reason. The guy, it's like back when they were like a like a pop punk band, like No Effects or Lagwagon, and okay, so did most of the vocals. So Clarity is the Benz then, and the yes. subtitled is Pablo Honey. That's the no, that is Static Prevails. Static Prevails is the debut. That that's like the real debut. Oh right, okay. Capital. Oh God, we need a Jimmy Eat World. The the people the people demand it. We're getting derailed. We were talking about STP for a quick moment. Yes, we are. And uh, so yeah, I, I I tend to lean toward tiny music with STP mm-hmm. just because 
it was, um, I guess, I guess it's their weird record. It doesn't seem that weird when you listen to it, but no. it was a little more experimental. It was like less successful. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, there's incredible songs on it. There's like, there's like fewer hits, but like there's so many catchy should be hits, I think on that record. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I like I said, I wrote about it earlier this year. Uh, year, so please uh, Google that, find it on Uprocks. <laughs> um, I did do, I did step up and write the anniversary think piece uh, for that. Right. So, but like, how do you feel? Like, where do you stand? Um, I actually listened to Purple the other day, and you know, like it's it it it, it, it reminds me of being a music consumer in 1993 or four when it's like. Oh man, this is like my favorite album of the year. Also, like three of these songs kind of suck, um, but you know it, it holds up pretty well. I mean, like some of it's you know obviously dated. Like whenever I hear the intro of Loungefly, I think of MTV News and Kurt Loder. <laughs> um, wow, like we wa- like a, a supremely washed moment right there. But what what interests me about like the, the discussion surrounding Stone Temple Pilots now. Um, it like are they properly rated now? Because for so long you would have to say like, no, go back and listen to Tiny Music. It's actually like really interesting, and they were kind of a glam band, but they were, uh, you know, but they were like kind of fronting as a grunge band. I think at this point, like, and like so, whenever you're talking about Stone Temple Pilots, you have to say like they were, you know, overlooked to the point where like they can't really be underrated anymore. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean. My sense of this is always a little skewed because in the worlds that you and I uh, populate, I feel like it is properly rated. But I feel okay. like the uh, the arbiter for this for me will be when Pitchfork does the Sunday review on Tiny Music and they give oh, it yeah. and they give it an eight point one. At least give it an eight point one. <laughs> I have a feeling that they would give it like a seven point seven or something. G- get me into the eight range and I'll feel happy. Uh, if, if you do, have you pitched it yet? Uh, maybe I'm doing that right now. Although I, I just wrote yeah. this huge thing on it, so maybe I'm not the guy. Maybe well, you're the you're one. the one telling. Yeah, I don't know. You're like, well, you've already written like five billion words about Jimmy Eat World. What's three thousand more? So well, you know what? I'd, take your own, take your own advice here. Well, I just wrote about this specific album. You haven't written specifically about Bleed American, have you? I've, I might have. I don't, uh, I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, let's get to our mailbag segment. Um, yes. And uh, thank you all again for writing. Uh, it's always great to hear from our listeners. If you want to hit us up, we're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, this letter today comes from Kyle. He's in London. London, England. Yes. I love it when international uh, people chime in. Uh, it's nice to hear about the global reach of the IndieCast community. Uh, Kyle says, really really excited for the Woodstock 99 documentary to come out soon. Uh, and that's today, by the way, on HBO and HBO Max. Uh, this year has seen a couple of great music docs, including Edgar Wright's film about Sparks and Questlove's Summer of Soul documentary. Just wanted to know what other music documentaries both you and Ian would be interested in seeing either about specific bands or a period in music history. And he says, i.e. birth of Midwest emo. That's clearly directed at you. People just want to keep giving you work today, Ian. Like, I'm trying to give you work. This guy's trying to give you work. Anyway, he says, thanks a lot, and you fucking broke my sitar, you motherfucker. Uh, (laughs) Good reference to Dig, one of the great music documentaries of the last 20 years. Uh, And that's from Kyle. So... um, (laughs) Have you seen 
the Sparks movie? I haven't seen that yet. I really want to. No, but you know, I I haven't yet. Um, but you know, whenever I look, man, like whenever I hear Sparks, like I do, I just think of like the uh, alcoholic energy drink <laughs> of two thousand nine, and actually, like that would be a pretty cool time to like uh, document. Well, the, uh, well, how about a Sparks documentary about this about the alcoholic beverage? I, I I'd be into a, a movie on that. <laughs> I I definitely. Uh, Drank a lot of Sparks back in the day. Wasn't it earlier than 09? I feel like that was more early aughts or like mid aughts. Okay, that was that was like early that was like early aughts, like 2003, 2004. Like that was big. I remember in like the DC bars where like people would also wear like trucker hats, and that was kind of fresh. Oh yeah. Uh, but it's it's a it's peak. It's zenith was Pitchfork Fest 2008, where uh, in the VIP section they had free Sparks. Um, as people who saw me there were, you know, still remind me to this day, but, um, enough about that. Enough about my dark, dark, dark past. Um, as far as like, you know, Kyle's question, like, oh man, I'm getting like pigeonholed as like an emo guy, man. Like I need to like, just do a, like a huge pivot this year into like, I don't know, like jazz or like, you know, egghead electronica. Like I'm going to be a floating points guy for the rest of the year. You know, I have the glasses for yeah, it. Yeah, like, so you're just feeling this now, though? I mean, I feel like it's not a pigeonhole. <laughs> this is something that you're known for. This is like a trademark. This yeah. is like an area of expertise that you've well, cultivated for the better part of a decade. <laughs> well, what, would, I, would, I be, would I be a real emo guy if I wasn't complaining about, like, you know, people who listen to emo? Uh, I mean, like, that's that, – I'm just following in the line of every single band who's ever excelled in this field. But – you know, the, Kyle, like, he brought up, you know, Birth of Midwest Emo is, like, something worth documenting. Like, look, I've seen the, uh, you know, the archived YouTube clips, like, of bands like Braid playing Fireside Bowl or whatever. And, you know, I, I don't think I need to see a documentary on that. Like, I know the stories. It would just be a lot of semi-filled basements, guys in cargo shorts and, like, you know, ringer t-shirts talking about like how they, you know, no one came to the show really. And we were always broke. And then we broke up because, uh, no one came to our show and we were always broke. And then, you know, that would be it. It would be fun to watch. Cause I like the bands, but like, I know those stories. So the ones that like Steve and I talked in a previous episode about how much we love interviewing like, uh, B and C list guys from like the alt rock boom of the mid nineties. Um, you know, they just have great stories of like having one hit, but like having that result in two million albums being sold. And that's the stuff I want to see covered. Like, give me like Madonna introducing Candleboxes, quote, my grunge band when she signed to Maverick. Like, I want to know like what Seven Mary Three felt like at the top of their game. Um, the video treatments for like the songs from 16 Stone. This era <laughs> of just like, I. I, I could watch like a 10 part, like Ken Burns needs to get on that right there. It's like jazz, civil war, uh, buzz bin. Like that's what I need to see. Just because like, it's such a, it's part, it's, I just think a lot of people who are in that realm would have like a sense of humor about it or even better have no sense of humor about it. And then you would see, you know, the guy, like, uh, you know, the guy from sponge whose name is Vinny Dombrowski. Like, like, I don't know that guy's name. Uh, just being like, yeah, man, with Wax Ecstatic, we really pushed the envelope. That's what I want to see. Yeah, you know, I always thought it would be a good Our Band Could Be Your Life type book to... Oh, yeah. Like, to focus on that generation, the, like, 
the the post grunge the the bands that were dismissed as bandwagon jumpers uh in their in their day uh because i i'm with you i I find that fascinating and uh and like you said like they had legitimate success for you know many years and then just totally fell off the face of the planet after that um yeah i'm with you i want to see that movie i'm gonna um the movie i'd want to make this is actually a dream project of mine for like several years like i want to make or i want to be involved in a documentary about warren zevon who I think is one of these characters in rock history that is sort of well-known because of one song, Werewolves of London. But for the most part, people don't know anything about him. And, you know, there's so many documentaries now, and a lot of them are made about really popular artists who actually aren't that interesting, like, in terms of their backstory. Um, Like... I watched the Coldplay documentary and actually thought that movie was pretty good. And I like Coldplay, but like, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of controversy yeah. in their past or anything. Warren Zevon, tons of controversy. He has an amazing book about him called I'll Sleep When I'm Dead that's actually written by his ex-wife, okay? And he asked her to do it. And that just gives you an idea. Like, there's no... Uh, it's just like an unsparing book about his past. You've got drugs. You have self-destruction. You have redemption. You have... A tragic ending that also turns somewhat redemptive. Um, and you have like amazing people that he intersected with, like Martin Scorsese, Bruce Springsteen, David Letterman, Neil Young, basically all of the like surviving old cool guys uh, would be interviewed for this movie. I think it could be really good. Uh, so that's the movie I'd want to see. I feel like that will be done eventually by somebody, because it has to be. Um, so, I don't know. I'm putting that out in the world, hoping that there's, like, a producer with a ton of money who will dump it on me to help make that movie. And also dump it on Ian, because I also want to see this mid-90s post-grunge movie, <laughs> the MTV Buzzbin. Call it Buzzbin. That should be the title, Buzzbin. Yeah. There you go. Uh, let's get to the meat of our episode. And uh, this is a topic that's really close to my heart, which is Heartland Rock. Uh because we've seen in the past few weeks a like just a bumper crop of records coming out uh, later this year uh, that uh, are in the Heartland Rock territory. And I have to start with the War on Drugs yeah. uh, being at the top of that list. Their record was announced earlier, earlier this week. It's called uh, I Don't Live Here Anymore. And it comes out October 29th. Um, you, we were talking about Jimmy Eat World before. Being your favorite band, War on Drugs are yes. my favorite band of like I guess contemporary band uh, right now. Um, but we also, you know, there was like a Killers record that's been announced recently. There's like a Coldplay record, which I can't believe we haven't talked oh, about yeah. that yet. The track list with the emojis <laughs> on it, which this band just gives and gives, man. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and then you know, there's uh, also a new Strand of Oaks record that's fan of the podcast. Oh, yeah. uh, 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 Tim uh, Showalter, uh, and that's a really good record too. I've I've been listening to that a lot lately. Um, but I'm I'm curious to get your take on the War on Drugs single, uh, Living Proof. I, I I should say I've heard this album. I was able to get an early preview, so I've heard this record many many times, and I shockingly I really love it, and I've listened to it a ton. And I'm sure I'll talk about the album more in depth later on, but. Yeah, I'm curious. I think I, I think we'll dedicate an episode to that. Yeah, album. but um, 
I'm curious about like, how you feel about the the lead single "Living Proof" because it is a little more subdued than I think people might have expected for a first single. Yeah, and I think that's like I, I like that approach. I think I've seen bands do that sort of thing more often, particularly with like bands that are known for like a certain style of music. Um, you know, had they had they released you know another song like say Pain or which by the way both a Jimmy Eat World and a War on Drugs song title, oh, both really good songs. Yeah, what, what, yeah. What record is the Jimmy Eat World uh, Pain on? Futures. Ah, okay. That was the lead singer. Of, that was the lead single of Futures. Oh, very cool. Um, yes, and I think it was also in Tony Hawk Skater, one of those <laughs> soundtracks. So very different sort of vibes. Um, yeah, this the war. We're on drugs. It's like, uh, look, I I'm a I'm a big fan of the band. Um, it's funny when, when I listened to um, this single um, on Spotify recently. Like, I, I didn't change the music after it ended, and it went back to. Um, uh, one of the songs from uh, Wagon Wheel Blues, uh, like just kind of autoplay, and it, it really just showed the distance this band has come uh, since 2008. And um, you know, when I first heard this song, I, I appreciate the fact that it didn't sound like other War on Drugs songs. You know, that's a style that has really become just kind of uh, like a primary color of uh you know indie rock or like kind of indie leaning popular rock and uh, the one thing that's like kind of prevented uh war on drugs from being a band that i uh revere to the degree that you do is that like the lyrics like are the lyrics are there i don't think they're good i don't think they're bad they're pretty good but like i don't know them a lot like i i really don't know a heck of a lot about like adam beyond what they allow in interviews is like, oh, he's, you know, dating, uh, you know, one of the characters from Breaking Bad. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, he was locked up in his apartment with like, uh, you know, 80 synthesizers. But this one, it reminds me more of, and I know this is going to be a endorsement for you. It sounds like those latter day Wilco albums that are just like really, really quietly produced and have, you know, the good tasteful guitar solo at the end and, really focused on the lyrics and you know it I'm like by the end of it I'm like oh I, I remember the melody great I can't wait to hear what's next but um you know it's it's I'm just glad that like there's a positive reception for war on drugs there isn't like this kind of cynicism that I'd expect uh you know kind of given the way they're they were they've been viewed or treated in 2017 so uh, and I think that's kind of a that's like kind of a something that's true with all these bands we're discussing there seems to be a general excitement for them yeah i mean i'm i'm with you on your observation about the lyrics i i feel this i feel basically the same that in the the scope of their music like the lyrics are definitely you know fourth or fifth or sixth down the list in terms of things i care about in a song and I don't know this for a fact, but like my sense is that Adam probably feels the same way. I think he's much more into uh, the music and also the production of the records. Uh, and you know, he's been working with Sean Everett for the last couple records, and I think just working in like world class studios and like laboring over you know different mixes and like how to put these things together. It, it seems like that's where he, where he really lives and breathes. Um, as far as the single, I mean, I, I did see like a little bit of chatter online from people who felt like, oh, I don't know if I feel this or this feels like a little underwhelming just because it wasn't the uh, roundhouse kick 
of a first single <laughs> that a song like Red Eyes is or a song like Up All Night, you know, that are much grabbier. And it has been four years since the last War on Drugs record. So, like, when you have a longer gap, I think there is maybe more of an expectation that oh, I, I need to be blown away immediately uh, when I hear the new single. Having heard the whole record, I would say that the single, uh, Living Proof, is representative of the album thematically. Like, it has a lot of the themes of the record, which I think is about sort of picking yourself off the mat after a difficult period of time, which is obviously very resonant at the moment now. But in, in terms of the music, I mean, I'd say that there's probably five or six songs, at least on the record, that to me are probably more in the vein of like a war on drugs song that we would all know and love and would like knock people's faces off. Like when they get released, like just like the big anthemic catchy type song. So I have a feeling that one of those songs is probably coming fairly soon after this and mm. people will hear that. Um, but you, you make, you made, you said something earlier that I thought was interesting when you were talking about how that war on drugs sound, it's become almost like this boilerplate reference point in indie rock I mean, what, what's your take on this band's influence i mean because I, I feel like it applies to some <laughs> of these other bands that we've talked about that have records coming out in the fall yeah i mean the thing about like um you know a, the thing about like war on drugs is that like y- you would think that like this band wouldn't be so influential or ripped off just kind of given the you know the the trending away from like you know arena heartland rock but God, do you remember, like, I I don't know if this band is from Wisconsin. I feel like they could be. Do you remember Caveman? Yeah. <laughs> of course Yeah, you do. absolutely. Yeah. And in 2016, like, they, they're they they're the kind of band who, like, any given year, they're just going to sound like, you know, what was what was cool two years prior. Like, a classic CMJ showcase type band. I remember I reviewed one of their albums in 2016, and it, it, it's... It was like when when Volkswagen tried to make a Beach House song because they didn't want to pay Beach House. This is like, yeah, this is like, we are now in an era of like where it's going to be incredibly easy and also popular to just like straight rip off uh, War on Drugs, particularly like the Red Eye sound where you got like that kind of militant, uh, steady drum beat that's not, but, and like the waves of reverb. And um, yeah, I think like the the, the gift and the curse of, you know, Warren, I think specifically uh, Lost in the Dream is that it's a really easy sound to like just dial up and rip off. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked about the Killers. They have a yeah, new album coming out. And their last album, Imploding the Mirage, I mean, that was a total <laughs> War on Drugs homage. I mean, there's tons of songs on that record that, like you said, seem to be channeling red eyes. Yeah. Um, which worked for them. I like that record. That record actually did pretty well. It seems like people seem to enjoy it. Um, and I think it works for them. An- another band that we like a lot, Wild Pink. Yeah. Also seems like they've been clued in, although they have more of a lyrical focus than <laughs> yeah. the War on Drugs do. They're not quite as anthemic, but they have more of an introspective, you know, storytelling aspect uh, to the songs. Um I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if you care about this at all, but you know, the, the John Mayer record that came out I'm surprised out last we didn't week. talk about it. Well, I'm bringing it up right now. Sock right. Rock, which Here I wrote are. about. I, I enjoy that album. I've come around on Mayer in general, uh, mm-hmm. digging into his past records. 
I thought it was interesting that people compared Sabrock to the War on Drugs, which to me seems like a little too far. The, The distinction I would make is that, like, the War on Drugs, when you listen to them, they evoke, I think, the spirit of a lot of that 80s rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you were to play Lost in the Dream next to Brothers in Arms, the D- Dire Strait record, I think it's pretty clear like what the, that Lost in the Dream doesn't really sound like Brothers in Arms. I mean, there's like yeah. a postmodern quality, I think, to, the, to what the War on Drugs do, where, yeah, they're drawing on Springsteen and Dire Straits and, you know, the Boys of Summer, all those signifiers. <laughs> but, you know... Adam also loves suicide and the Jesus and Mary chain and like a lot of that post-punk and indie rock type stuff. So it's like 80s put through that kind of filter. Whereas Sob Rock, it's just a straight up <laughs> replication of 80s music. Like there's you no You gotta filter. respect the nice price uh, sticker on the front. Yeah. And I think John Mayer, it works for him because he's always been, in my mind, an 80s rocker. Like he is more like... Dire Straits or Phil Collins than you know his contemporaries that he came up with in the in the aughts. Like I would I would liken him more to that eighty stuff than to Coldplay and you know like the other like big pop rock acts yeah. that started around two thousand. Yeah, I think John Mayer's just been a guy. Like he's an example of how if you like you stick around for long enough and you're popular for long enough, eventually people are like, I don't know, man, like. It's just maybe he's like better than we thought he is. Uh, the arc of history always bends towards pop, you know. Like, I mean, we had like the Billy Joel Renaissance uh, happening. It, it's John Mayer is just like a guy. Like, even if like he, you don't like his music, and yes, I like I like I hope I depart from this mortal coil, having never heard your body is a wonderland again. But um, you know what? It. it I got. I have to like in some way respect the hustle. <laughs> well, and you know what I find interesting about Mayer is that he has this pop career, and when mainstream music publications talk about him, they focus on the pop stuff. But for the past six years, he's played guitar in uh, Dead and Company. Yeah. So he has this like significant jam band following now. Like he, I saw a video clip last week of him. Uh, I think he was playing one of his songs, but like the in the intro, he did a tease to the riff from Stash, which is a fish song, and he Even did it like, really that. well. <laughs> he, so, and of course, you know, on Jam Band Twitter, people were eating that up. They loved that. Yeah. So he has that going, um, and I think that's like an underrated aspect, at least in the pop press, about yeah. like how he's been able to stick around because. Dead & Co., I mean, they play stadiums. I mean, they're like one of the biggest live bands in the world. And he's the guitar player. And he's been able to, I think, build this other audience outside of the pop audience that has really sustained him in this part of his career. Yeah, throw a bone to the jam band community and like your second life. <laughs> exactly. They, they, are a lo- they are a loyal bunch. I mean, like... Well, just like, like the emo community. Again, it, like this, I'm bringing the jam and the emo community together because <laughs> I think it's a similar thing. It's like... Well, to, I would say that if, and if any of those emo bands were to like throw a bone to the jam band community, they might find themselves playing, you know, more to more than like 50 people. <laughs> well, what I would say like for you, part of your love of the 1975 is oh, the yeah. fact that Maddie Healy throws the bone to the emo community every now and then. Oh, yeah. And if he didn't do that, 
maybe you'd be more inclined to look at him as just like another, you know, pretty boy, uh, you know, empty suit, you know, but mm. you, you feel like that probably gives him some depth or it makes <laughs> him more likable to you on some yeah, level. Or just like a really, or just like a really, uh, you know, uh, savvy guy, you know, like I, I do wonder about that. Like if, uh, bands like really big bands like are told by their handlers like look man just like say this and you'll have like this segment of the critical thing like you don't have to mean it just say it and it's the smallest thing but they're gonna like you will get like diehards for life if oh, you yeah. just do this one thing I mean I don't think I don't think he's lying Maddie Healy no, or no I don't he, think John... he means it dude like he like, really means it and John Mayer I don't think is lying either but no there not is, at all but there is also a savviness to doing that that yeah. it, it, it is it's it's like being a politician like i'll visit this constituency and make sure that they vote for me you know like i'll, I'll just throw them a bone here mm-hmm. even if it's not the main thing that i care about you know throw them a bone they'll be happy and then i can you know consolidate my power you know i i i, I think you can be sincere and also calculating at the same time and i, I think that's an aspect of that um we kind of got far afield from Heartland Rock here. I don't know. Do we want to talk about the Coldplay record at all, or are we going to wait oh, till that God. comes like out? This, yeah, this is going to be another Ken Burns type undertaking. But you know, like uh, this new the thing is about like their first single. We got to mention Higher Power because I thought in the like when I heard that kind of like uh, you know that up tempo like mechanized drum beat. It's like okay, are they finally making their war on drugs so, like song? But in reality, it's like oh, this is a Blinding Lights ripoff. And I think it's interesting, like, how kind of similar... Like, you could totally hear the War on Drugs making a song like The Weeknd's Blinding Lights, right? Oh, that's a great point. That never occurred to me quite like that. But, um, yeah, I think they could totally do that. I, I I suspect that if they were going to do that, they would have already done it. Mm. You know, I, I feel like the opportunity probably would have been there for them by now or like for Adam to do like a Kevin Parker thing where he's appearing as a guest on other people's records or helping them. Oh yeah. You know, but I, my sense is that he's not interested in that, you know? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe he is and just hasn't done it yet, but I feel like if he were to do it, he would have done it by now because yeah. I think the opportunities were there for him, but it seems like he's pretty focused on his own thing. Um, can I just say too, like you know, because I knew we were going to talk about Coldplay in this episode, oh, yeah. and um, and I, I think I like Higher Power more than you, uh, by the yeah. way. I think it's a good single. I'm actually into this new album that Coldplay is doing. I feel like, I guess my hope is that it's a return of like the Milo Zylado type. Oh yeah, guys for them. Now we're talking. It seems I'm getting some Milo Zylado vibes from some of the things they're doing lately. Um, but you know, I went on Spotify and I was you know looking at their streaming numbers, and I don't know like I was I mean I, I I know that Coldplay is a popular band obviously, but I was still like pretty shocked by how well they do on Spotify. I mean they have two songs over a billion streams. Uh, the Scientist is over a billion, and that song that Chris Martin did with the uh, Chainsmokers. Something just like this uh, is almost at 1.6 billion, so that's going to hit two billion, like you know, before long, I'm sure. But you know, even you know, like Yellow has almost 900 million 
Yeah. Uh, Viva La Vida is over is over nine hundred million. Like yeah, this, yeah. They're, they're gonna Clocks, have like multiple. Kind of like a Clocks is kind of a deep cut compared to some of these. Well, yeah, it's like Clocks has about four hundred million, and then him for the weekend has seven hundred and thirty-two million. Him I don't know weekend? what that song sounds like. I, I don't I'm either. sure I've heard that song, but I don't know that song. Or Sky Full of Stars has... Okay, I know that one. I know that one. That has 765 million streams. Actually, I mean, and that's from Ghost Stories. That's like the one interesting part of the documentary because like the rest of the guys in Coldplay are like, yeah, this kind of sucks, but like Chris needs to make this album right now. So, you know, we're going right. we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna help him out here. Yeah, I, I'm just... I mean... After looking at these numbers, I feel like there should be no question that Coldplay is the biggest band of the last 20 years. Um, and that not only are they like the biggest band, but they're like uh, maybe the, the biggest pop act. Yeah, I mean, like, who is doing those kind of numbers? I mean, Drake is doing those kind yeah. of numbers. I don't know. Um, you look at you look at everyday life, and I mean, these are just like pedestrian like 22 14 million that's true that's i mean yeah. which the grammy nominated uh everyday life by the way the album of the year nominated everyday life which i don't think i've heard i mean this is a double album i'm looking at this track list i don't know this record at all i did not listen i, yeah. I kind of want to go back and and check it out um yeah, I mean, certainly that record didn't do well, but man, I, I, I don't know. I was blown away by these numbers. It's, I just think incredible. we need to see, uh, the way that we judge this, like, I, I would just love to see what a live, like, like Coldplay playing Coachella would look like now. You know, that's, we've like completely lost that metric of assessing popularity. But I mean, hey, maybe this is the album that, Re uh, reacquaints Coldplay with uh, Middle America, you know. I mean, you don't think that they would kill at Coachella? I mean, I oh feel no, like they would be... totally, totally. I mean, they're they're. Uh, I mean, they they would do that, I guess, if they wanted to. But they're they're a stadium band, so I mean, they're not going to play festivals unless they think it's you know good for their exposure or something. I mean, I I wonder like when the last time they did Glastonbury was. I don't know. Put the intern on that. Yeah, I'm curious to see that. Glastonbury, you should think about booking Coldplay. I think that would be a smart move. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, after an entire episode of complaining about being pigeonholed as an emo guy, uh... That's the, the, those days are over. I gotta recommend this uh, EP that I found recently. Um, you know, on one of the message boards that I frequent, even though like those message boards contain the worst shit I see written about me on the internet. Uh, it's a Philadelphia emo band called Johnny Football Hero. That is, yes, it's an emo band because it's got football in the name, but also a lyrical reference to Not a Surf's popular. They put out an EP called Complacency. Now, this is a band that's got like, I think, I don't know, less than 500 followers on Twitter. This is like real, you got to search for this. But 
This just shows you how quickly uh, things evolve in emo. Like they're like, yeah, we really wanted to sound like Dogleg. Uh, we really thought that album was awesome. But they're also bringing references like, you know, the tra Trail of Dead, particularly with the drumming and bands like Dance Gavin Dance. This these like kind of metalcore pop bands that I, I have no awareness of. But they put it all together on it's tw it's an EP, but it's twenty five minutes. Um, I can't think of if you've liked any kind of emo from the past 20, like not 20, like, yeah, 20, but mostly like the past 10 or five years, you're going to find something to love here. There's like group chance, but also the singer can kind of do the Gerard Way, Patrick Stump belting thing. Um, there's, uh, you know, really quiet mineral type ballads. It reminds me a little bit of like Glass Beach in terms of how comprehensive it is. And I've like, feel like I'm nowhere near getting to the bottom of you know, what this uh, EP can do. But Johnny Football Hero, Complacency EP, you'll know like within the first two minutes if you're into it. And God knows I am, so. Well, uh, Ian was very nice and he's giving some ups to a up-and-coming indie band. I'm going to be totally self-interested with my recommendation and be a total promotional whore. Mm -hmm. And shout out Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, uh, a documentary airing on HBO and HBO Max starting tonight. Uh, I am in the movie. I am one of the consulting producers. Uh, it's the story of the infamous 1999 music festival that uh, featured a whole lot of new metal bands oh, yeah. and a, a, a small handful of female singer-songwriters and totally went off the rails, uh, resulting in riots, uh, sexual assaults, uh, all types of violence, just mayhem um, all over the place. Um, I'm proud of the movie. I think it turned out well. I would love for you all to see it and let me know what you think. Uh, again, that's called Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, directed by Garrett Price. Uh, check it out on HBO and HBO Max this weekend or whenever you find time to watch it. Uh, I think that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.